This is Daniela Ohad, and you are listening to Designing the 21st Century. We live in Manhattan, and when we moved to West 57th Street about 10 years ago, it was this quiet district. It was filled with business people rushing in the morning to their offices. But by the early evening, it became quiet and secluded. And with the exception of concerts in Carnegie Hall, where you could see elegant people in nightgowns and stylish suits, the area was widely asleep. Architecturally, it has been one of my, I would say, favorite neighborhoods because it's always been filled with these exquisite pre-war, small, landmark, white glove buildings, mainly attracted Performing artists, creatives, and lots and lots of city dogs. It was just perfect for us. But soon things started to change dramatically when massive, massive construction of the tallest and the most expensive towers in New York had turned the neighborhood into New York's center of new developments. It was quickly became known as the billionaire's row. To some people, these towers became intimidating, clashing with the fabric and sensibilities of everything this hood stood for. Architecture critic Martin Filler has published a remarkable article in the New York Review of Books where he analyzes the politics the zoning, the aesthetics, I think everything that made these condominiums happen. Hi, Martin. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Daniela. We've known each other for so many years. You know, I I remember I first met you when I invited you to a program at the 92nd Street Y. Right. This was over 10 years ago. Yes. And you've recently published an article, an excellent article about my neighborhood. And I would like to speak to you about it. Yes. Would you yourself live in one of these towers? No, I don't think I would. I learned a lot from your article and I would like you to illuminate on some of the issues that you raised. You said that what enabled the existence of such high buildings, you spoke about several uh, issues, but one of them was air rights. So what are they? Well, basically, um, air rights are a term of art uh, for um, ways of getting around existing zoning laws in the city. In 1916, with the advent of high-rise, architecture in New York, it suddenly became clear that streets in lower Manhattan were becoming overly dark, overly congested, uh, because uh, these tall buildings were going straight up one after another. The 1916 uh, revision to the zoning laws required what were called setbacks, that buildings had to have a smaller floor plate as they got higher to allow the diagonal entry of light to the street level. Um, and, and by the way, and that setback came to uh, affect the style of the uh, skyscrapers in the planets. Yes, I think that that sort of um, ziggurat style, which we associate with Art Deco architecture, really was imposed um, 
uh, legally by these uh, 1916 zoning laws. In any case, real estate developers in New York, where land, of course, is, is always so valuable, have always found interesting ways around the existing laws. And one of the um, uh, ways to build taller buildings was to transfer the so-called air rights of low-rise buildings next to high-rise developments, which is to say if you had two six-story brownstones and wanted to erect a 12-story building above one of them, you would buy the air rights, so to speak, from one of them, which took away the right of that building from adding to its height, and you could build higher on your site next to it. And this is legal? Yes, quite legal. And then you also say that another aspect that have made these buildings possible is strict boards of New York City's co-op buildings. Well, that's a that's a backstory. For years and years, the, the um, predominant form of apartment home ownership in New York was the cooperative, where you had a, um, a group of so-called cooperators, and you had a board of directors of the co-op, and they had the final say as to who might buy into their building. And this was a way of excluding people that, that uh, neighbors did not want. As new money began to explode after the dot-com boom, and the whole very notion of wealth uh, was entirely uh, reconceived internationally, uh, there were many people with huge amounts of money who were considered too socially, ethnically, or otherwise unsavory for the um, exclusive buildings of New York. It was often said there were only about 50 so-called socially desirable buildings. So in a way, there was a, a vast market, a hunger for luxury housing that these new rich people could buy. And the condominium format, which was very different, which did not require board of uh, director approval, you just had to make a real estate agreement with the seller of the condominium, became the predominant and desired form. But isn't the co-op system is a good thing because it comes to protect buildings? Yes, I would think uh, in many senses. We live in a co-op and we're very happy with it. And it's, I don't think any of the uh, restrictive uh, policies would apply in our building. I think it's mainly uh, a financial review to make sure that the buyer has enough money to meet their monthly uh, maintenance obligations. However, there are many people who see real estate in a different way now, not as a lifetime purchase, but as an investment, and very often an investment from foreign countries where uh, quite frequently uh, these apartments uh, will, will barely be occupied during the ownership period. So generally, I can say that people who live in a foreign country really cannot get accepted to a co-op board. It, it depends who you are. Now, if you were the um, mistress of a deposed African dictator, <laughs> I would say not. <laughs> However, there have been other very prominent, uh, rich, respectable people who would be. But very often, um, um, co-op boards want people who are going to be full-time residents. So the new name is the Billionaire's Row. And I want to look at it as a whole, but I also want to look at each building its own. So let's look at it as a whole. How do you think history will look at this type of building 100 years from now? I think all architecture, whether it intends to or not, reveals 
a great deal about the social climate that produced it, whether this is public architecture or private architecture. This is private commercial architecture. But I think it does speak about the explosion of international wealth, the migration of vast fortunes internationally, and the a sense of instability in the world that has made a country such as the United States, even with the recent political turmoil here, seem like a safe haven. If we look at the predominant buildings, uh, we speak probably about five of them. Yes. So let's talk about each one separately. Let's first talk about 432 Park Avenue. Isn't the modernist and that geometrical formula, isn't this a formula for successful design? Well, it depends on what period you're making that judgment. It's very often thought that the simpler building, the more likelihood it has of um, standing the test of time, as they always say about works of art, um, that it won't look dated after uh, uh, a few years, won't go out of fashion. Raphael Vignoli, the Uruguayan-born architect um, who designed it, uh, reverted to one of the most uh, basic um, design formats of the modern movement, the grid. So it's basically a, a white grid. It was said that he was inspired by a um, waste paper basket that was designed by the Viennese turn of the 20th century architect, Josef Hoffman. So what, what do you think is wrong with this design? Well, um, first of all, I think it's far too big, for one thing. Uh, one of the key factors in this whole development was the fact that during his uh, 12 years as New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg completely revised the um, zoning laws uh, from Manhattan. And uh, he had apparently been on a business trip to China. He had been in Shanghai, and he was so impressed by the extensive super high-rise skyline of Shanghai that when he got back to New York and rode into the city on the Triborough Bridge, he thought how puny Manhattan looks compared to Shanghai. He was also very worried that with the uh, burgeoning economic growth of China, that the U.S. would soon be superseded and that we had to compete with China in terms of an attractive business climate. I think he was thinking very, very old-fashioned terms about office space in a way that was not taking into account the way the workplace was changing, where people were working in the electronic age. And this was well before the pandemic, which, of course, we know has totally turned the workplace concept on its head. This episode is supported by Rego Wright, specializing in the sale of modern and contemporary art, ceramics, jewelry, and design at auction. With a strong, independent voice and dedication to presenting materials in fresh and innovative ways, Regorate hosts more than 50 curated auctions every year in a broad range of categories and at various price points, showing that everyone can live with art and design. Visit regoarts.com or right20.com to view upcoming auctions and to contact specialists for contemporary evaluation of works you'd like to sell. So let's go now to the newest building, the Steinway building. Yes, this is um, known also as 111 
was 57th, and it's designed by the once esteemed firm of shop architects. I say once esteemed because in some way, I think this building may disturb me more than any of the others because it is the most exaggerated in terms of the narrowness of the building. It has the smallest floor plan to height ratio of any of the new super talls. And to me, it sticks out in the most offensive way among all the buildings, billionaires row. You know, I think that for myself, I would be scared, seriously scared to go up there. Yes, well, I would too. And um, one of the problems that people have been reporting in 832 Park Avenue has been the creaking sounds of the building swaying. Now, the architects of uh, the Steinway Tower, they gave uh, reassurances, which I fully believe, about the engineering safety of that building. But it is true that all tall buildings sway. Okay, so now let's go further west to the two buildings by Excel. Yes. Let's start with 157. That's the uh, Porson Park building. And this cost enormous. This was the, really the first of the super talls to be completed and occupied. And it got tremendous amounts of publicity when in 2014, an apartment there sold for the first time anywhere ever for $100 million. So this, this, this magical $100 million price ceiling was broken. And this was considered an enormously important development in the real estate market who could not possibly conceive anything having brought that much. Uh, the building was originally supposed to have a very interesting tessellated glass skin, tessellated being a kind of an overlap, which gave it a, a, a sense of almost fish scales and a texture and a color, but it proved to be too technically difficult to execute at such height. And then it was just changed to a flat glass facade, although colored and tinted uh, shades of blue and gray, the clear glass, but tinted, uh, were, were substituted. So I think the original artistic uh, intentions, which Horizon Park had likened to a waterfall, the building has a slightly curved top, and that this tessellated blue-green cascade of shimmering glass would, would have the effect of waterfall, which it really does not at all. And then there is the hotel. The Hyatt is right there in the building. Yeah. But if we go to the next building of Excel, where the Nordstrom uh, department store, what about that one? Well, I don't think terribly much of it. I really think that most of these buildings are simply wrappers around a preordained financial formula. We have to get so many square feet of saleable space. We will hire an architect of some note. This has never been the best work that any of these architects have done. 220 Central Park South is a whole different story architecturally. And it was designed by Robert Stern upon the tradition of the New York City Art Deco. It is an enormous, enormous success. Yes. He also designed 15 Central Park West before on the same formula. Yes, yes. And what is the secret of the success of these two buildings? Well, there, it, it is certainly the most remarkable success. And I think it has spurred many developers to take a gamble in this very high stakes market, 
uh, without realizing sometimes the principles that underlay the success of these two buildings. 15 Central Park West was developed by the Seckendorf Corporation and inspired by the classic 1920s uh, New York apartment buildings uh, by Rosario Candela, who was an immigrant um, Cuban architect, but who had a real flair for high-end apartment design in a period when the, the rich were not yet fully committed to the idea of living in apartments. 15 Central Park West was, was in progress when the, 19, when the 2008 stock market crash occurred, and the, the whole project came to a screeching halt. There were many uh, of these uh, luxury apartment building projects that just fell by the wayside, but this one miraculously regathered strength, proceeded, and was finished. And its turn, its eventual turnaround, became so extraordinary that it was known in real estate building, was known in real estate um, circles as the limestone Jesus because it had risen again from the dead. You know, it was considered a completely dead project. Uh, the list of celebrities who have bought and sold apartments there is endless. Do you like 228 Central Park Center? I don't like it, but I don't hate it. It has many of the characteristics of Stern's retro style, and it, it does beg comparison with, with these older uh, Park Avenue Candela buildings, which are much more finely detailed, I think. But uh, I can see why a certain segment of the market who also likes the Stern firm's uh, traditionalist Country houses would also like this rather than living in, a, in an apartment with all glass walls, which are in fact much cheaper for a developer to build. You don't need that degree of detailing of, of materials and expensive materials and expensive craftsmanship. But, you know, I wonder what does this tell us about architecture if we see that retro architecture looking back and recreating, I would say even sort of copying the past mm -hmm. is much more successful than new innovative architecture. What does it say about architecture? Well, I think for, I think residential architecture is, um, I don't want to say a case unto itself, but I think people um, may admire a public building such as Frank Gehry's uh, Guggenheim Bilbao Museum but would not want to live in something like it. And I think there, there are certain elements such as um, wall space. You know, if you live in a, an apartment with floor-to-ceiling glass in, in one half of your apartment facing in one direction, that's one wall that you, you know, can't hang pictures. It's hard to put furniture in front of it. You have to have curtains. You, you, you have tons of problems with, with light control. If you have artworks or fabrics, they can fade. So there are many practical aspects also. But I think also it's very clear that these tycoon buildings appeal to an older demographic. These are people who probably had their sense of what success looks like formed many years ago. And to them, the idea of a limestone-fronted Fifth Avenue Central Park Facing apartment was a trophy that they never got away from. And, you know, there is this allure of these buildings that make the people who buy apartments there seem more tasteful. Yes. I mean, there is that. And in a way, you know, Stern has been likened to 
Woody Allen and to Ralph Lauren as one of these Brooklyn-born, you know, New Yorkers who always had his nose pressed against the glass of Manhattan and Gershwin in the background and, and limousines and a kind of a 1930s-based um, a, a glamour of New York. The, the decade, interestingly enough, in which all three of those men were born, but just the way that Woody Allen has romanticized New York and its skyline and a, a golden haze of nostalgia, I think that's very much where Stern's commercial apartment architecture is coming from, too. And, and, you know, and he took what Vincent Scully discovered and brought it into a new horizon. That's, a, that's definitely true. And he was a, a Scully, he had taken courses with Scully. And um, was a great champion of his particular take on American architecture, looking more at the traditionalist aspects than the innovative aspects, definitely. And this is the only thing that was left from the 80s that is still desirable. Well, yes, commercially, <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't argue with the figures. So, Martin, before I say goodbye to you, tell me, what is your favorite new building or new architecture? Well, that's a tough one. In the past 10 years, one of the most satisfying buildings was the Barnes Collection in Philadelphia by uh, Todd Williams and Billy Chen. They were given a very, very difficult assignment in Philadelphia where they had to essentially replicate the interior layout of the old Barnes Foundation in suburban Philadelphia and to um, present a new museum building on Benjamin Franklin Parkway, the great avenue of cultural institutions in Philadelphia. And I think they just did a magnificent job in, in combining old and new, um, fulfilling all the rather strange layout requirements, but making it into a, a distinguished a work of architecture on its own. And I think it was on the basis of that project that they were asked to design the Obama Presidential Library Center in Chicago. Martin, thank you for teaching us so much. And I'm going to keep following your articles and critique at, in the New York Review of Books. Thank you so much. This is Daniela O'Hagans. Thanks for joining me. I'm going to be here in two weeks with another fascinating story. 